listening to a Drishti Point podcast. Please visit our website for more inspiring interviews on yoga, spirituality, and wellness. I am currently in Rishikesh, India, with a special guest, Chaitna Panwar, and I am very excited to be interviewing Chaitna this evening and sharing a little bit of her background and insights on women and yoga. Chaitna is passionate about integrating Gyan and Bhakti Yoga, philosophical contemplation and devotional practices. Blending insights from her master's degree in adult education and her training in yoga, she developed the curriculum and manual for World Consciousness Yoga Families Yoga Teacher Training Courses. Chaitna teaches philosophy, teaching methodology, and transformational experiences for the 200 and 500 hour yoga teacher training programs. She's very enthusiastic about helping yoga teachers learn to design and offer interactive experiential workshops. Along with her husband, Yogi Vishvaketu, she founded Anand Prakash Yoga Ashram in Rishikesh, India, and that's where we are right now. And they live here part of the year with their children, and the rest of the year they live in Toronto. So welcome, Chaitna. Thank you. It's great to it's great to be here in, in India with you at your Indian home, and to have this opportunity to talk a little bit more about women and yoga. Yes, uh, Chaitna, Chaitna, and I have been talking over the last couple of days, and this topic came out of some of our conversations, and it's something that Chaitna has direct experience with. Uh, being a being a woman and also being a mother, so Chaitna, can you first of all just give us a little bit of insight into how you got onto the path of yoga? Mm. Uh, wow, <laughs> that's going back a ways. Mm, I actually got involved with yoga through a meditation class, a free meditation class that was given at the public library in Kingston, a small town that I was living in, in the early 90s. And I didn't, it wasn't spoken the word yoga at this particular meditation class, although a lot of the energy work techniques we were using, I would describe as uh, tantric energy work practices nowadays. Um, But they they were practices that had been revealed to a Canadian man and were being taught as such. But at some point, the teacher of the class uh, mentioned, oh, you should try asana as well, and it's very complimentary. And uh, I started practicing some Kripalu-based asana practices, you know, rolling around on the ground and doing uh, simple asanas and with a very yielding, um, letting go kind of quality to it. It's a beautiful, um, beautiful practice um, following which I began to practice with an organization that practiced yoga in a holistic way and I began to understand yoga as as a broader uh, system, um, a historical system, but also a system that included all of these things, asana, pranayama, uh, meditation, active practices and yielding practices. Hmm, That's really wonderful how your introduction to yoga encompassed all of these other practices where a lot of times our introduction in the West to yoga is through the asana, through the physical form only, and more through the yang aspect, through the dynamic uh, doing force opposed to what you're talking about, the yielding more feminine aspect. Yes. 
And how did you take to that immediately? Was that more in line with your nature, or was that something that seemed foreign to you at that time, the, the more yielding yin, feminine aspect of the practice? Hmm. You know, I remember we were speaking about this the other day and talking about how uh, my first uh, asana teacher said very early on to the class, don't try to do anything with the postures. Just sort of be here, you know, rock back and forth for a minute and then just at your leisure rise up into the posture. Don't make it try to look like anything. Just feel. What does it feel like in your body today? And this just felt like a huge weight off my shoulders, having been, having been very driven um, by my parents and I think society in general in the West to really achieve academically and in school. I loved my studies. I was very much inclined to, to reading and to intellectual study, but there was a lot of um, comparison and competition and mark counting and, and all of this uh, when I was in high school. And so moving into the university stage, which is a little more self-directed, and then finding yoga was just an amazing way to explore that aspect in my personality, just that abiding the being in nature as a child and as a teen, and comparing that to um, this concept of just beingness in yoga, being with the self, um, observing the self without judgment or without comparing. Hmm. And you talk about nature. Is this something for you? Has nature been a part of the connecting piece for you as far mm. as being? Is that something or what aspects of your life or what tools do you utilize to access your beingness, so to speak? Oh, that's very interesting. Uh, I, I find and have found that being in nature is incredibly grounding and stilling. Most people, I think, find that when they're walking through, you know, a lush forest or, or the dry um, fall leaves or something like this, that they really connect with the energy, the colors, the richness, the textures, almost the breath of the forest, that oxygen giving, a life force. And so my explorations in yoga help me to make sense of those natural experiences. I think of yoga as being a way to capitalize on our natural states of beingness. We have these natural, um, I'll often call them theta states or peak states, where we feel suddenly just completely at peace and at one with the environment. And often this is helped by taking a long walk on a beach or sitting watching the gently lapping waves or seeing the clear, still lake at sunset when suddenly the lake becomes glassy and reflective and there's just this aura of peace at sunset where even the birds stop chirping. Um, and savoring that or having savored that naturally sort of within my family environment and then understanding how I can take that as a meditation and bring that into other aspects of my life when perhaps I'm not sitting by a peaceful glassy lake at sunset. It's yoga is really about harnessing these natural capacities of mind and using a technology to bring it into our lives at will on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. Wow, I love that. That <laughs> visual. It's really beautiful. 
And I know that you teach teachers, you're a teacher of teachers in the yoga teacher training programs uh, here in Rishikesh at Anand Prakash Ashram and also in Canada. And I'm curious as to what you've observed uh, through the women that you teach, because uh, it, it is a lot of women that come to yoga and to come to take the teacher trainings in, in yoga. And I'm curious as to the transformation that you've seen and how you facilitate women into having an understanding of being more connected to their own internal rhythm, whether that's the menstrual cycle or the rhythms of the day or the season, Mm -hmm. and how being a woman we perhaps have insight and inclination into that part of ourselves, but we've also disowned yes. that part of ourselves through conditioning and through our upbringing, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. stereotypically speaking. Yes. Oh, there's so many things that come to mind <laughs> as you say those things. Um, maybe just to start off, we've been talking a little bit about the, the kind of yang nature of some of the practice practice that we see in the West, and the more yin nature of some of the just abiding practices. And uh, I see in teacher training this a lot, that as we're, we're talking about meditation or as we're talking about practices and daily practices or sadhanas, and going through intensive periods of focus on our sadhana, that some women begin to react to this and step back from this. I've heard women say in Yoga Sutras classes, oh, but all of this stuff about non-attachment, this is so male, and the female nature is to be attached, to bond, to bond with children. And maybe we can sort of slowly unpack some of these ideas, but I think very often these reactions come because people are being exposed very much just to the active practice of sadhana and not to these wonderful, uh, beautiful um, passages in Indian philosophy that talk about opening up to uh, beingness as our internal nature, as our inner nature. I once heard um, Dr. David Frawley speak here in Rishikesh at an Ayurveda conference about the pure blue sky above our heads as being an uninterrupted or unified field of awareness and that looking at this clear blue sky, or, or a clear blue lake for that matter, as a type of pratyahar, as a type of um, directing the senses. So utilizing the senses and directing the senses to achieve this state of, of, of sadhana, yes, to achieve this state of peace through nature, through the environment, through something very natural, the natural stilling effect of the fields of nature on our being. So you'll hear Osho talk in this sort of vein as well often that um, yoga is the pathless path, yes? Or that there's no technique for meditation. We think so much about the techniques to concentrate and yet we often don't teach or what's not seen is this concept of harnessing our natural our mind's natural propensity for concentration, for oneness, for expansiveness, to really dive into these unified fields. 
So, of course, we have techniques for concentration. I think Osho is very right. There are many different techniques we can use. But when we come into a state of meditation and a state of integration, it's, it's effortless, in a sense. Or there's a small effort to maintain that sense of, of, of harmony that comes when you're in, in a meditation. And that might be seated on the mat or on the, on the cushion, or that might be as you're uh, very slowly walking down the street with a two-year-old child. <laughs> hmm. And it almost sounds uh, to me like the techniques themselves are more of that masculine doing energy, and the state of meditation, the state of awareness, is abiding in that more feminine energy. Would you agree with that? Huh, that's very interesting. And I guess it depends on the types of practices. Mm-hmm. Um, because within something like the, the Yoga Darshan, for example, the Yoga Sutras, we see both of these, and in um, the Upanishads as well, that contemplation is a practice. In fact, in the Upanishads, contemplation is the central practice. And so in the West, we divide up physical, active practices like cleansing kriyas and asanas and pranayama techniques as a practice and contemplation as a a non-practice. But we could see these perhaps as the two different spectrums possibly of practice. This is making me think of um, chapter 2, sutra 1, where potentially outlines the practice of yoga is tapas, svadhyaya, and ishvara pranidhan effort, effort or austerity that creates heat and discipline. And in the center of that, sort of the balancing fulcrum of that, svadhyaya, contemplation or self-observation. And then the opposite end from the upper effort is this allowing or surrendering to the witnessing consciousness or to the witness self. So this very much this effort and allowing, discipline and surrender, um, or uh, discipline and spontaneity, as we were speaking about it the other day, all um, sort of balancing around this idea of self-observation, or self-observation without judgment, as Swami Kripalu would say. Mm, I love that tripod that ba- and the balance point uh, within of all three of those um, experiences or concepts are necessary to be the witness and to have a balance so it's not all about the austerity, it's not all about the surrender, but it's uh, about the balance point in between all of these things. Yes, yes, I like to say very often that um, through yoga we recognize balance, or through yoga we recognize that opposition or duality is illusory. It's an illusion we have within this material world where we see day and night um, masculine and feminine, sun and moon as being opposites. In a, very, in a very real way, we experience these energies. But at the same time, we see hatha yoga as one word or one concept, sun, moon, yoga. Yes, And when we put those ideas together, to me it implies that when we have these energies in harmony, we go to a place that's beyond opposition. Yes or there's another third kind of quality that, that emerges or that comes out. Um, we could say the Shushumna energy from the Ida and the Pingala, and the balance is the Shushumna energy, yes? Um, 
and that itself can be yang or yin, depending on if you're talking about the fiery upward movement of the kundalini or the, the descending grace energy that comes down transcendentally into the shushumna. So it's all, uh, almost anything we talk about about yoga is about this, this idea of going beyond uh, duality or finding harmony and balance in where we perceive duality. Oh, thank you. So Chaitna, please share with, with us a little bit more about your own personal experience and your um, worldly experience and perspective of women in yoga. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> We've been talking a, a, a lot about um, motherhood lately. I have two young children living with me at the ashram. And so maybe it would be helpful to talk a little bit about that as well. Mm. We've been talking also lately about cycles, cycles of life and cycles of sadhana. And, you know, both of us have been in this practice for 20 plus years. And, and it's, it's interesting to, to see in sadhana and in life that we go through these phases. And um, maybe not all of the listeners uh, know about this, but in the traditional yogic texts, life is divided up into these four phases. And the first phase is quite the phase of this active practice, brahmacharya it's called, or the life of the celibate student. And that goes until about 25 or so, and then there's a shift into family life or uh, fulfilling social responsibilities. Um, Yeah, and so very often what we see is as people come to yoga, and I think it's wonderful if people come to yoga as children or as um, teens or 20-somethings. This is an amazing time when you first feel that passion or that vehemence, that calling to follow a specific practice. There is a great energy that can be mobilized to help to bring perspective, to help to bring balance to how we're interacting with ourselves, with other people, with the world. And this time in our sadhana, in our, our learning and, and our, our, our practices or austerities, we gain so much wisdom, so many lessons are had from really walking that path of tapas, the discipline that creates heat. Um, But, you know, as we've both noticed, after a certain period, perhaps a period of 12 years or so, we talk about 12 years as being a bit of a cycle within the yoga tradition. For many of us, in particular women, who at that point are then thinking about having families or participating in a wider creative community in some other way, that the sadhana has to change or simply does change. And that's where I think we get into this cycle of life where something has to give. We made space for the sadhana in our lives, and that has to happen in order to really work with the path and to see where it can take you. We have to make space for those practices. Then at a certain point, we need to make space for this, the rest of life that we may want to engage with. There's a certain narrowing of our lives as we create space and we set priorities around really wanting to explore the technology of yoga. Um, And then 
if we decide to have children or we decide to get married, for example, there's a space that it takes to actually be in that, to be with a partner in life or to be with these children that, are, that, that we're creating. And so for myself, I noticed naturally that as I had a child, I was spending long periods of time um, nursing um, uh, my, my daughter and um, gazing into her eyes. And actually, a lactation consultant who came to my home said, oh my goodness, your daughter has the most steady gaze. She'll just look into your eyes for long periods of time. And I don't see um, other babies necessarily doing this. And I thought, wow, you know, isn't that interesting? Because that's pretty much what we've been doing for the past four weeks, six weeks. So I naturally, I think, some of my yogic practices were morphing into this spontaneous co-practice between myself and, and my first child. Having a first child is really divine because you can have your total attention often just with that child. If you've made space for that baby moon phase, so to speak, where you can really just be uh, with your child and get established in nursing and, and slaying and walk your baby in the community. And it's, it's so amazing now that we have maternity leaves that allow this for an extended period of time. Of In Canada, we have a year um, now for this at the minimum for, for most people. I, as a yoga teacher, am self-employed, so I had to orchestrate that a little bit. And I'm, I'm very pleased that, that other women had this natural space kind of created for them through this year-long maternity leave. Um, so whatever your situation is, I feel like I would highly recommend that to anyone, to try and create space to just be, be with your baby. And if you're a yogini, to see how that naturally will affect how you view the idea of the practice of yoga. Because inevitably, I think when you're involved in, in a community, as many of us are nowadays, that is very much oriented around the practice practice, whether it's the meditation sitting or the asana or the pranayama or the mantra uh, japa or whatever it is, or if it's a blending of all of those, um, when you have a baby, sometimes there's this niggling feeling, this niggling guilt or self-doubt or this feeling of judgment, the judgment of others, or the, just the judgment that we place on ourselves that tells us, oh, the only thing is I'm not practicing anymore. Yes, I, I, I've written a little sort of a, a bit about my experiences uh, recently, and I describe, you know, gazing into my child's eyes and going for long sling walks and just really being together, even in the middle of the night, just, you know, waking up and nursing, co-sleeping and just being with my sleeping child and dropping into the rhythms of, of waking to nurse. And the only difficulty I had, I think, with that whole scenario was that niggling question, is this yoga? Is this still yoga? Yes. Um, so I, I still feel that. I, it's five and a half years on. I have two children at this point, and I live in a, in a holistic yoga ashram, but to a certain degree, which is focused around pr trying to give people experiences of what these diverse holistic yoga practices can offer. And I'm kind of the, the abiding 
person or who the, the, the force that brings in this concept of surrendering to the now, surrendering to being fully aware in each moment whenever you remember that, that this is um, really ultimately what yoga off the mat sort of boils down to. And so I, uh, I'm sort of the, the representative of that, or sort of the hardcore um, constant plugging voice for that here, I guess, at the ashram and perhaps in the community at home, um, to really get that out there, that yes, I'm a yogini, but my biggest priority right now is creating a place of presence and being uh, with my children. And when I'm with them, I'm not thinking things like, or I'm attentive to noticing if a thought creeps in, oh, I wish I were you know, able to just go for a tea right now and decompress with another mom or another friend instead of being here in the sandbox as I've been for the past hour or so. I'm very attentive to those thoughts and, and I remind myself, ah, you know, perhaps it's time to schedule uh, something so that I can go out and take a yoga class and really savor that yoga class or go out and have a half hour tea or a half hour walk around the neighborhood on my own or longer once the kids aren't nursing anymore you know you can get those two hours or three hours every once in a while to really nurture yourself and the more I do that the more I'm attentive to my sort of creative longings or longings for just beingness as a person myself the more I'm able to be in the sandbox, just creatively watching my children dig in the sand or explore small bugs or taking 20 minutes to walk one block down the street and being fully content and savoring and present in that with them. And when I notice other thoughts arising, I can choose to just be with that and allow that and, and bring myself back to the present or find something about the present moment that's very satisfying or very attractive to me as well. And or remember, as new mothers often do, that I need to build in moments for self-care sort of throughout the day as well. So even that self-care is can be a primary practice for many people in the first couple of years of child-rearing. I just love what you're sharing because it really sounds like taking yoga off the mat um, is motherhood and has to, you, you almost need your yogic practice even more as you move into the phase or the cycle of motherhood in, in one's life, if that's your path, um, to help be present and to, it's almost like you have a foundation and awareness about the practice of motherhood being the meditation. Mm -hmm. uh, and I also heard you say that there's like a niggling guilt about and doubt about is this yoga? Mm -hmm. And what would you recommend or say to other women in the same situation, whether they have a child mm -hmm. or maybe it's their career that is taking over their time? How yes. would you recommend or support them through yeah. that idea of is this yoga if I'm not doing asana or meditation um, yes what would you say to yes. that 
um, or not long sits, perhaps. Yeah. Um, yes, I think sometimes it's it depends on the moment when it comes in. Sometimes it floods in sort of all of a sudden if we haven't sort of thought much about what that will be like suddenly shifting gears. Um, or if women haven't been in a mindfulness practice at all, they've been in a really go, go, go career, and then they switch and suddenly they're on maternity leave with a small baby and it just feels like, um, how can I be in this? And there's long periods of just um, sort of watching and waiting and long nursers, long nursing babies and what have you. Um, and very often what I see is that women get to a point where there's just a natural, almost necessary, just letting go and dropping all of it. So there's this sort of frustration or the feelings build, 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 build. And then there's just sort of this natural dropping back into the community space, into being in the community with the child. And, and this is a beautiful thing. It's actually kind of like a spontaneous um, yoga without trying to say that everyone is doing yoga sort of subconsciously or anything like that. It is, we can really see this through the yogic lens, yes, what, what's going on there. Um, but you know what I often say to the yoginis that I meet who already maybe have a, a, a two-year-old or a three-year-old and they're coming into yoga teacher training and they're trying to make that space for themselves and come into um, a space of having some practice, practice again, as well as the moment-to-moment -moment beingness. We'll, you know, have the talk about Sutra 133, perhaps, that cultivating or that peace of mind is created by cultivating friendliness towards the happy, compassion for the unhappy, joy toward the virtuous, and, um, oh, how to phrase this last one, um, dispassion in the face of adversity, let's say, that being a mother, being a parent, or, or being in the world is really, this is really Patanjali's one sutra where he very strongly implies that growth happens through being in community, yes? Mm -hmm. um, and that working with these things or witnessing these things is what um, helps to establish peace of mind. And so uh, for a, a young mother or a woman as you described, I might say, you know, with your children and as lessons even to your children, discussions that you might have with your children, is this cultivating friendliness towards the happy present? Ah, well then this is yoga, yes. <laughs> or compassion for the unhappy. You know, you have an unhappy child on your hands, a cranky, grumpy, tired child who doesn't want to be at the mall or on a long car trip or wherever you happen to be or to be going. Um, just being able to be with that often there's nothing you can do. You're already in the situation and it can't easily be gotten out of perhaps you're on a, on a motor trip. So just to be with that and to radiate compassion as maybe your own frustration rises to come back to that sense of compassion and beingness and trying to lull the child into um, 
a state where they can find some peace. Uh, all of these things at the limit, creating space for them or satisfying their needs, stopping the car and saying, well, it looks like we're stopping here for the night. I mean, all of these things are our yoga. Mm -hmm. Noticing, witnessing, being with someone, um, noticing what their needs are or really just being there. Um, if we have teenagers, we're not over-advising them all the time, but very often, and this goes for teenagers and adults, very often people just want to be heard, to just bear witness. We did a practice of this just this morning, a co-listening practice, um, an active, compassionate listening practice. So all of these things that I think any parent has some experience with, this is yoga. So I would say to people, you are enough, yes. You already are enough. And if you feel to take something on, try taking on five minutes of breathing awareness anytime you think of it throughout the day. Or setting some specific times or specific watch chimes um, so that you can take those five minutes here and there throughout the day. I recommend this actually incidentally to people working in offices as well. Just whenever you have the moment or whenever your computer does the hourly chime, take five minutes and just do a breathing practice. Is this enough? Is this yoga? Yes, I would say it is. <laughs> uh, thank you for those applicable tips and reminders of how we can come back to presence. Chaitna, I loved what you were talking about before the break and how you were giving us reminders. Uh, I loved what you said about am I enough or is this enough, you know, taking five minutes as many times in the day that we can remember uh, while we're nursing our child or why we're, maybe we're a, a woman in the workforce and while we're at the office. And I think this is really very crucial, that remembrance of yes, I am enough and yes, this is enough and yes, this is yoga. Um, because there's so much uh, desire to be doing our practice and sometimes the, the duality or the conflict arises uh, internally. I'm sure it, it, it's the same for men, but especially for, for women and being a woman myself, noticing that conflict arising of, oh, well, if I'm not doing my sadhana, you know, 365 days a year, if I'm not doing my yoga practice, then I've somehow failed or somehow, somehow getting behind. Um, yeah. And I really like this idea of I am enough. Mm -hmm. uh, and it feels much more nurturing than perhaps the more forceful energy of discipline, of that tapas or that austerity. Uh, yes. And perhaps you could discuss a little bit about these two energies of spontaneity and discipline. Hmm. That's so interesting. Um, you know, we spoke earlier about being in the phase of, of sadhana and then moving into a different phase of life, perhaps. Um, you know, I, I always loved the, the quote, I believe it was Krishna Das, um, who said during one of his, his satsangs, um, if you think you're enlightened, move in with your in-laws, get married, have a baby. <laughs> and, you know, there's a very interesting sort of striving, achievement-oriented quality 
to some um, Western yogic practitioners' practice or the way we speak about the practice. Um, and uh, this desire to show progress or to be somewhere, to have become someone, which actually, ironically, is a kind of non-yoga. <laughs> so when we catch ourselves in that, that excessive striving, I would say, because of course, a practice in and of itself, there is some level of striving. But that's why we talked about the balance of, of tapas, discipline and surrender or devotion. Sometimes when we've done a lot of sadhana, there's a moment where we simply let go and that's when the peak experiences come or that's when the moments of real integration and expansiveness come. I think many people have witnessed this even with study. You're studying hard, late at night, you're trying to figure out a, a physics problem. I'm thinking about something specifically from my teenage years, really trying to figure out a physics problem. And then just thinking, oh, well, I'll, I don't know if I'm going to get this. I'll have to see what happens tomorrow in class. Walking away from it and, and then coming back and suddenly the, the answer was just there. I had missed one of the calculations and it was just there. So, you know, we speak about this in many aspects of our lives that effort is often required, but also we recognize also, and we have lots of idioms, you know, for, for speaking about this. You know, when we stop kind of banging our head against the wall, you know, uh, the, or when, you know, a door closes, a window opens, so to speak, yes? There are so many of these interesting synchronicities in life that have a lot to do with yielding, and then a path becomes clear. So, yeah, this issue of the, the excessive striving or the trying to become something. In fact, I think the, the yoga off the mat um, is about really noticing, are these practices making me calmer, clearer, more in harmony with others or with the state of beingness? And regularly allowing for the concept of there's nothing to prove, there's nothing to be or become other than what is right now, yes? And why does that seem like such a tough pill to swallow? <laughs> <laughs> like, well, you know, it makes total logical sense, I understand yes. it, and it's like, why is that still so hard to accept and to do, to, and not to do, but to, to be that and to yes. really embody that philosophy? Yeah, well, I think maybe when people um, haven't had enough experience with certain aspects of the technique or they're working on a specific thing, um, they, they feel the, the benefit of the tools. Or when we first start yoga, we feel the benefit of the tools so much and we believe that, we must, that this tool is what I need to be doing forever. Yes? Um, or we make commitments. We make commitments to doing an intense period of sadhana for a specific period of time. You know, I love that. Swami Shivananda Radha would say uh, sadhana is best practiced in um, intense uh, periods of, or periods of intense practice, yes? And this gives room I think, 
for just being and integrating the practice and notice what's happening in the practice. Very often when we're caught in the cycle of these yin practices, there is no integration. And that's where people might step away at some point and feel that, oh, is this practice in fact making me more yang? Yes? I think it depends on our nature as well. In the West, we're very pitta vata. So we have a lot of the fire energy and we have a lot of the motivated space wind energy. As a combination, this is a powerful force that's created very sort of structured, organized, um, inventive societies, yes? But we all, I think, notice that we're missing that, the earthy, watery elements of family, connectivity, connection with community, the glue which really holds it all together. And we look at societies like India and say, ah, these societies are relationship-oriented societies, but maybe not so much of the, the motivation or the drive that creates infrastructure and that um, yeah, m makes things all a little bit more manageable when you've got such a large community. So when we look at things on that macro level, we can really see that, all right, if I'm a sort of a very driven, motivated pitta type, I might have to really actually find that space of yielding. That might not be my most natural thing to come to. Ironically, though, that's what could really um, be of benefit as a balance in, in the practice of yoga. Um, whereas if a person is naturally uh, very centered in the home and in relationships and is very grounded, some more of the practices which create or import more prana, like pranayama practices or taking a brisk walk in nature and things like this, these are practices which could actually benefit such a person. More often, attracted to uh, the asana practice nowadays, which is so much taken to the fore of the concept of yoga, is very much um, the pitta and the pitta vata. Um, in the past, I don't think that was true. In the 60s and 70s, people were trying to drop out and tune in, yes? So people were attracted to the idea of going back to the land, to smaller communities, to making space in their lives through downgrading to lower cost housing and things like that, which provided more space for um, these earthy practices. So we saw a lot of um, chanting or um, movements ba uh, based on moment-to-moment uh, -moment meditation and really savoring, savoring our lives, savoring our experience, noticing our experience in nature. And then uh, that sort of has morphed into the late 80s and early 90s into a very sort of yang-driven um, asana practice. If we could only come back and, and sort of harness the energy of both of those, I think, well, that's what we sort of say we're all about in Akanda Yoga, talking about this holism, bringing it all together. So the various aspects of the technique, which I've just spoken about there a little bit, but also the idea of this effort and allowing on the mat, off the mat. Um, yeah. 
And that's so key for, I think, for all of us in in this society today as the, the effort and allowing and how to find our own unique balance between both of those things. And as you said, this is our yoga. And I, I really love it. It keep resonating with me, though. Um, am I enough? And yes, I am. I just love that sharing that you <laughs> offered. Um, as we wrap up here, Tate, and I just want to... Uh, to ask you if you can give people information about how to get in touch with you, uh, about your website, and how they can learn more about whether it's your yoga teacher trainings and what you're up to. Oh, sure. I'd I'd love to. Um, We offer, one of the primary things that we offer are yoga teacher training courses 200 and 500 where um, we really try to bring in this the whole aspect of yoga. So there's a lot of philosophy, discussion, experiential-based learning, as well as a full set of, of yoga technology. And we do that in India and in Canada, but people can find out about it or how to do uh, shorter um, transformational experience retreats um, or experiential learning retreats with us. Um, in Canada and and in some other countries that we visit regularly by going to akundayoga.com. Can you spell that? (laughs) A-K-H-A-N-D-A-Y-O-G-A.com. Fantastic, akundayoga.com. Thank you so much, Chaitanya. It's been wonderful sharing on this topic of women in yoga, and I think it's very poignant and necessary at this this time for all of us to have a deeper understanding of bringing yoga off the mat and into our our life. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. So thank Namaste. You much. Namaste. Great Namaste. being here with you in Rishikesh. Yes, wonderful. <laughs> thank you. Good night.
Thank you for listening to Drishti Point. We dedicate our efforts to the health and happiness of our listeners and for the health and happiness of all living beings.